With that, let us now turn to our passage for today, John 5, verse 1 to 18. The passage is John 5, verse 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going another steps going down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we're continuing our teaching series this morning in the book of John. We've been watching Jesus as he engages with different people, and we've been noticing that he does so in different kinds of ways, that he tailors himself to the unique individual who's right in front of him. And he does that so that he can meet their unique needs. Now, John tells us toward the end of the book why he's presenting these particular accounts to us. And he tells us that he has a purpose, that out of all of the hundreds and the thousands of things that Jesus did while he was here on this earth, out of all the things that he said that John could have written about, John selected these very few particular examples. And he did that, verse 31 of chapter 20, with this intention. It's so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing so that you might believe as, as he tells you about Jesus. And since the goal is that you might believe so that you might have life, it makes sense that John would give you accounts of times where people do believe to show you here's what belief looks like. It makes sense for him to select not just one of those accounts, but a whole bunch of different ones to show you that belief comes to different people in different kinds of ways. And so he'll give you accounts where some people believe pretty quickly, others take longer. 
Some people will argue with Jesus. Other people don't. Some people are confused. Some people need a rebuke. And some people just need a little bit of gentle prodding. All of those different kinds of ways make sense. And then you come to chapter 5, to today's passage. And it's really hard to walk away from this passage thinking that anyone here believes. Certainly the Jewish leaders do not believe. They end up persecuting Jesus and they, try to, they seek to kill him. Clearly they do not believe. But you would be hard-pressed to say that this man who is healed believes. John never says he believes. John will say that with a number of people, that so-and-so believed. He never says that with this man. And there's nothing that comes out of this man's life that indicates belief. He doesn't answer Jesus' question, verse 7, not really. He's not fully engaged in what Jesus is doing at that point. There's no indication that he has any faith for his healing. We saw last week at the end of chapter 4 that the man did have faith, had needed to have faith in order to receive the healing. Don't see that here. When the Jewish leaders confront this man in chapter 5 about carrying his bedroll, he, he redirects their irritation off of himself in verse 11 onto the man who healed him. But you learn in verse 13 that he wasn't even interested enough at that time to find out who this one was who healed him. Then verse 15, despite knowing that the leaders are upset by what's happening, he goes back to them anyway on his own initiative to identify Jesus. And in that moment, he paints a bullseye on Jesus' chest so that Jesus now becomes a target for their Jewish leaders' unhappiness. After that, you never hear of this man again. You don't hear about him in this book. You don't hear about him in any other. There is not a single thing in his life that says he believed. There's no gratitude. There's no engagement with Jesus. There's, there's no desire to get to know Jesus or to be with him. Instead, you see just the opposite. He has more interest in gaining his society's approval than Jesus's. He has more interest in hanging out with Jesus's enemies than with Jesus's followers. Which makes you wonder, why is this here? John gives you pictures of belief, of what belief looks like as people embrace Jesus. That makes sense because that's his whole point. You need to understand what the real thing looks like. But apparently John is also going to give you pictures of unbelief. Why is that? It's because sometimes it's helpful to study the counterfeit so that you can see whether or not you've got the real thing, whether or not you have belief or unbelief, faith or not faith. And John is telling you here that Jesus engaged a lot of people personally, that he talked with them, he did miraculous things for them, he warned them, and that there were people like this man who heard those things, who received from Jesus, but after all of that, they didn't believe. They didn't have any more faith after they met Jesus than before they started. And so this passage comes to us as a warning. It's a warning that says, don't fool yourself. Because it's possible, not just for people 2,000 years ago, it's possible today to hear Jesus, to experience his kindness, and yet walk away from him and want nothing to do with him. So if we're going to take the warning seriously, we need to see three things today from this passage so that we don't get caught in unbelief like this man did. We need to see first, what does unbelief look like? Does it have some characteristics that we could then recognize, ways that we could identify it? What does unbelief look like? Second, what does unbelief say about God? How does it twist and distort who God is so that we don't have any interest in him, so that we don't want to believe? What does it, unbelief say about God? And third, how do you deal with it? If you see unbelief in yourself, 
what do you do about it? So first, what does unbelief look like? Second, what does unbelief say about God? And third, how do you deal with it? First, what does unbelief look like? Are there ways that unbelief typically manifests itself so that we can see it and call it out? You remember here how Jesus said in chapter 3 that when you are born of the Spirit, that, that produces a change in how you live. You have no idea when that new birth happens or, or how it happens, excuse me. But once it, ha it happens, it's very visible in the way that you live. You remember that we studied that several weeks ago. In the same way, if that new birth does not happen, if a person doesn't believe, then that lack of faith, that unbelief, also expresses itself. And the essence of unbelief that you see in this passage today is that it relies on human-based solutions to address humanity's problems. Underlying it is this belief that human beings can fix everything that's wrong with the human condition, whether it's the physical or the spiritual realm. There's this underlying belief that we just don't need any help. Lame or paralyzed man, wh whatever he is there, can only think about healing in one way, and that is that it has to come from the pool. He's fixated on the pool. He's already decided this is where my healing's going to come from, and so he doesn't look for healing outside of his own personal experience. He's certainly not looking for healing coming from outside the world. So when Jesus asks in verse 6, do you want to be healed? This man isn't even considering that there might be an alternative to what he's already been trying to do, which is to get into the pool before someone else does. But all you have to do is think just a little bit, and you realize there are other alternatives. Last week, Pastor David taught us that an official traveled 17 miles to find Jesus in order to find a cure for his son. That official was someone who was what? They, they were open to all kinds of different options out there, open to solutions that were outside of his own experience in living in this world. This man in chapter 5 has God in the flesh. He has Jesus standing there right in front of him. He doesn't have to travel 17 miles, doesn't have to go anywhere, doesn't have to do anything, and yet he is locked into looking for a cure from the pool. And it just seems obvious to him that there isn't any other better way to have a better life. It's so obvious to him he doesn't consider any alternatives, doesn't even bother answering Jesus' real question, do you want to be healed? Instead, he tells Jesus how he needs to be healed. He tells Jesus what he really wants, what he really desires, and that is for someone to assist him in making life work according to the way that he's decided it has to work. He's already decided what he needs. He needs to get into the pool, and therefore he's not looking for anything else. A God who might break into his world from the outside to give him what he cannot give to himself, that kind of God's just not even on his radar. Or consider the Jewish leaders. Our scripture translation calls them the Jews. Technically, that's correct. But the word can also mean the Judeans, the Judeans, depending on your pronunciation, meaning the Jewish leaders. And that's a better way to understand what John is talking about here. You think about it, this account takes place in Jerusalem, which means that nearly everybody that John is writing about is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. His disciples are Jewish. The lame man, because he ends up in the temple later, is Jewish. But apparently, John has in mind a particular group of people who have a problem with Jesus who are also Jewish. The author of this book, John, also a Jew, calls them the Jews or the Judeans to identify them as this distinct opposition group. There's another translation that will call them the Jewish leaders. I'm going to adopt that way of speaking about these guys. 
just like this man who was healed, the Jewish leaders have also decided that what they need in order to solve the problem of the human condition, in order to have a better life. Now, their solution has a spiritual dimension. But their approach to spirituality factors God out of the equation, just like the man at the pool does. The problem that they're addressing is, how can God be happy with us? And they decide it's up to us to make that happen. God is only happy with holy people, with those who keep his commandments. Therefore, we need to obey so well that he recognizes our holiness. And if we can do that, then what? Then he'll be happy with us. So how are we going to do that? We're going to take his laws and we're going to apply them to each and every area of life until we come up with this really long list of all the things that we can and can't do. And then we're going to keep that list. And we're going to shame anybody who doesn't keep that list or who doesn't try to keep that list. We are going to earn God's approval. We will deserve to be with him by going above and beyond what he said. And so these Jewish leaders have taken the things that God said, like the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work on it. And they added long lists then of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Now God did say, you need to take one day in seven and abstain from your normal occupation. You need to rest from working. You need to honor that I'm the one who makes your life work. You don't make your own life work. In other words, it was a day to remind yourself that your life was completely dependent on God. And so God said, abstain from your normal occupation. But God never said you could not carry an object, like a bedroll, from one location to the other. The Jewish leaders, however, did. They had an oral tradition that they created that went beyond what God said and became even more important to them than what God said. And they twisted everything all around so that it became a way not of depending on God, not of actually resting, but of depending on themselves and their own efforts to make a way for them to get to God. And so the Jewish leaders confront this man. In verse 10, they say, It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. According to our tradition, you're working, and therefore you're breaking the Sabbath by our definition. And notice the irony here. They get so caught up in their project, so caught up in their attempt to make themselves acceptable to God, their attempt at self-salvation, that all they can see in that moment is a threat to their agenda. All they can see is this man carrying something, and they completely miss the fact that there's a miracle here, that this man is standing up after being an invalid for 38 years, that more than that, he's healthy enough, he's got enough muscle tone, apparently, to pick up a bed and carry it away. They miss the picture that Jesus just gave them, a picture of resurrection, where one day Jesus is going to take your body that's broken by sin and by the curse of this world and make it so completely new, it, it, it's going to be amazing. But because they're caught up in their agenda, they miss this little glimpse of the resurrection. And that's when you learn a very important element of unbelief, dimension of unbelief. That unbelief is not just bad people doing bad things, but unbelief can also be good-looking people doing good-looking things. And I think that's surprising to a lot of us. See, when we think about faith and its opposite, when we think about belief and unbelief, we often mistakenly put this in terms of morality. And so we think about good and bad activities. We think about good and bad people, good people doing good things and bad people doing bad things. 
We associate then good people doing good things with faith, with belief, and bad people doing bad things with a lack of faith or unbelief. But doing bad things, thinking bad things, being a bad person, that's just one form that unbelief takes. It's only half. The other half actually looks pretty good. It looks virtuous, it looks well-behaved, it looks moral, it looks self-controlled, it looks disciplined. It is all of those things. But it's also self-reliant. It's proud and self-deceived. It has no idea how blind it is to what God's offering because it has no idea how deep our human need really goes in us. It has no idea that the source of all our problems is that we've rejected depending on God and that we cannot fix that rejection on our own. And so what do you learn here? You learn that you can literally have Jesus. You can have God in the flesh standing there in front of you, standing there in front of this man who needs to be healed, and the man says, I have no interest in you. I don't need you unless you're here to help me get into the pool, unless you're here to help me with my agenda. The Jewish leaders are no different. They literally have Jesus, God in the flesh, standing there in front of them, and they're incensed because he's not working with them to help with their agenda. They're convinced that they know more about God than the Son of God does. That's unbelief. It's the prettier version of unbelief, the religious version of unbelief. But just scratch it a little bit, and underneath it's just as ugly as any immorality. It says to God, I don't need you, and I don't want you. I know what I need, and I know that if I just have the right resources, I can fix all the problems that I have. I don't want the help you're offering. I can do this myself. Unbelief has an ugly side and a pretty side. And that pretty side, the good-looking side, says we don't need power from outside this universe to break into this universe to fix the problems of humanity. We can do that ourselves. It's not just something that you hear in a small little nation some 2,000 years ago. But you hear it there because it comes rolling down throughout the ages. It's present in every age. It's present in every place. It's how humanity instinctively thinks and approaches life. It's something that you have to be alert to. You have to be alert to it in yourself since it's part of the air that you breathe as a human being. So let's tease this out just a little bit more. Let's ask the question, what's the underlying assumption of unbelief? It's that somehow evil is present in this world. But evil and suffering, that's present in this world without being an essential part of the human condition. It's the assumption that all of the ills that afflict humanity are products outside of the core nature of our humanity. That something other than human bentness, human brokenness, human twistedness accounts for evil. That evil has its source in something outside of what it means to be human. And because evil is outside of our essence, well, then it's something that can be overcome by us. We just have to work hard enough to get rid of it. It's the basic essence of unbelief's philosophy that we have all the resources that we need in order to fix evil. And we don't need God to tell us what the problem is, and we definitely don't need him to fix the problem for us. We can do it ourselves. This is a philosophy that the human race tries repeatedly, and it's a philosophy that fails repeatedly. 
In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller quotes a British philosopher, C.E.M. Jode. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. C.E.M. Jode, who turned back to Christianity from agnosticism after World War II, after he saw the, the horrors of World War II and the atrocities of the Nazis and the Stalinists. And the reason that he turned back to Christianity is because of how poorly the philosophy of unbelief actually worked in actual practice on the world stage. Keller quotes Jode as Jode writes, the view of evil implied by Marxism, expressed by Shaw, that's George Bernard Shaw, and maintained by modern psychotherapy, the view of evil implied by Marxism, expressed by Shaw, maintained by modern psychotherapy, a view which regards evil as the byproduct of circumstances, has come to seem intolerably shallow in light of all the atrocities that he saw, it seems to be intolerably shallow. He goes on, it was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed. Disappointed by the failure of true socialism to arrive. Disappointed by the behavior of nations and politicians. Above all, disappointed by the recurrent fact of war. Jode is saying that the popular view of evil is that it's the byproduct of circumstances, that it is something that happens to an individual rather than something that the individual brings with them to this earth when they're born. And just to unpack some of his examples, psychotherapy believes, okay, there's evil out there, and, and, and evil gets generated in us. How? because you were mistreated in a certain way, or you're not accepted because of who you are, or society imposed rules and laws on you in such a way that you had some kind of scarring, some kind of traumatic event at some point that happened to you, that's what's to blame for why you think and respond the way that you do. Or Jode references Marxism. Marxism believes that evil comes when capitalism creates a class of people who are disenfranchised. Because they're disenfranchised, that then leads to social conflict. In other words, when you see evil in a person, it's the byproduct of something that's gone wrong in their society. It's not something inherently wrong in that person's nature as a human being. And so the logic goes, if it's the byproduct of something that happened to you, well then, we can eliminate that byproduct. We just have to set right the thing that is wrong. We can educate it away. We can legislate it away. We can reform it away if we only have the political power and the political will to do so. And so this is what you see in the, in the larger world. Our counseling philosophies, our social policies, our legal systems, our politics, all take the tools that are at their disposal and apply them to what? To the circumstances that they see as responsible for producing evil. All while ignoring the deeper issue of evil that is sourced in the human heart that you just can't make go away through all of those other means. Now, is it wrong to educate and legislate? Of course not. But you have to realize that those things have limitations. In their place, what can they do? They can help restrain evil. Martin Luther King said this really well. He said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important. Very important. But that's not the same as saying 
that those laws can then turn an enemy into a friend. As Dr. King said, the law cannot make someone love you. It's not wrong to address these external circumstances that are evil, but it's foolish to ignore the real source of evil. Foolish to believe that you have the power and the ability to transform an unjust individual or an unjust society merely by exerting human power. And that's exactly, however, what unbelief tries to get you to do. It tries to get you to do something that you can't do. You can't make a person right with God or with their fellow human beings by educating them or legislating them into rightness. You can't make them right without the power of God transforming them at their most basic essence. Try that and you're going to functionally end up saying to Jesus, we don't need you. We got this. Only you're going to be left with the same disappointment as Jode was in the middle of the last century. That's the first thing that you learn about unbelief in this passage, that it will tempt you to rely on your own resources to give you and others a better life. If you don't want to be caught in unbelief, you have to look at yourself for where you've given into that temptation, that temptation to factor God out of the equation, not necessarily mentally, but functionally. Second, if you don't want to get caught in unbelief, you have to realize that unbelief will lie to you about what God is like. Let's go back to the sheep gate where the man is beside the pool. He's lying there, verse 3, among a multitude of people who are all waiting. They're waiting because somehow every now and then, verse 7, the water of the pool is stirred up. And when that happens, people think that it's being supernaturally stirred and that the first person who jumps in is going to be healed. Now, God did not say that, but that's what people think. That approach to life, being the first to get into the magical water. That says something about God, if you believe that he's the one behind all of this, but it doesn't say anything good. It says he's capricious. Sometimes the water's stirred up, sometimes it's not, but there's no way to tell whether it'll be stirred up or not. There's nothing reliable about the stirring, which means by implication, there's nothing reliable about the one who's behind the stirring. Second, it also says God doesn't care about you individually. His care for you, that's not personal. His care is available in general, but it's not for you in particular. He's not thinking about you. He's not thinking about what's best for you. You are not a unique, special individual to him. You're merely what? You're, you're one in a multitude. A multitude who all have the same treatment, the same options. But it also says third, that God is essentially Darwinian. Because the way that people think that he set up this game is that you have to be the first one into the pool in order to be healed, which means what? Only the strong survive. And that means that God is only interested in healing those who are strong enough and fast enough to take care of themselves. Or he's only interested in those who have access to greater resources and help than the people around them says God doesn't care about the weakest members of society, that God only helps those who help themselves. Now, again, there's nothing in this passage to suggest that God was actually doing something there at the pool to help heal people. But if you bought into that idea and you're one of those multitude lying there, you're going to come away with a twisted and distorted picture of God, a God that you cannot have confidence in, a God that you couldn't possibly begin to love because Clearly, God is not interested 
in loving you. But the same theology that you learn at the Pool of Bethesda is the same theology, the same view of God that you would learn if you bought into what the Jewish leaders were doing. Keeping all of the oral tradition also said God was capricious. That there was no real way to know if you were doing everything that he wanted you to do or whether you were letting something slip that would really be important to him that you just weren't clueless about, like you know, carrying your bed on a day when that wasn't okay for you to be carrying your bed. Also said that he didn't care about you personally. That you could keep all the rules you wanted, if you wanted, but he wasn't thinking about saving you and rescuing you specifically. You weren't really on his mind personally. You're just one in a multitude of people who are all trying to get better spiritually. And it really said that he was Darwinian. That you had to have a certain kind of mental and moral toughness that could not only keep all of the nuances of all the rules and laws straight in your head, but that actually was able to act on them and act on them and keep on acting on them with the same fervor and the same energy and the same zeal over and over and over without getting tired, without getting worn out. It meant you had to be a certain kind of person in order to deserve being with him. And it was very clear. If you were weak, if you were tempted, if you were struggling, you need not apply. The horrible theology of the Pool of Bethesda is the same horrible theology of the Jewish leaders. It's a theology of a God who is utterly unattractive. A theology that paints a picture of God that nobody in their right mind would be interested in. But it's a theology that just makes sense because it's the only theology that you can be left with when unbelief enters in. See, unbelief, just like Christian faith, unbelief creates an entire worldview. And when you buy into a small part of that worldview, you're getting the whole piece. So if you buy into a worldview that puts humanity at the center of the fight against all that's wrong in this world, which unbelief does, humans are the change agents, they are the heroes in the fight against evil. If you put humanity in that role, you have to take that role away from God. If humans are in the center, God has to move out to the periphery, which means then that what? He's, he's not as active. He's not as attractive. It's not the real God, but it's the God that unbelief tells you is real. So this passage invites you, check yourself. What kind of God do you believe is out there? Do you believe in a God who is aloof, uninvolved, a God who has no real interest in you personally, one who makes you work harder to get to him than he works to get to you. One who sits back and waits to see who's going to be willing to scratch and claw their way to the top of his good graces. If any of those sound familiar to you, if they fit some of your view of God, it's not because those things are true of him. It's not who he really is. It's because you're hearing the lies of unbelief and because they're finding a home in you. When that happens, you don't really have much interest in God. And frankly, why would you? This is not a God you would be interested in. So if you don't want to get caught in unbelief, you first have to see that it's going to tempt you to rely on yourself to produce a better life. Second, you have to see that it's going to lie to you about what God is like. And then third, you have to have some sense of how to deal with it. I want to draw your attention to two things here very quickly. First, if you want to overcome unbelief when you become aware of it, 
you have to see Jesus a lot more clearly than you already have. You have to focus on him. You have to see that he is the opposite of everything that unbelief tells you to expect of him. So what do you learn then as you see Jesus in chapter 5? You see that he's intentional. He goes walking in an area where the invalids are. He's not hanging out with the strong. He goes to where the weak and the helpless are. And you learn that as he's there, he's personal. He learns how long the man had been incapacitated, verse 5. He knows somehow, verse 14, that the man's suffering was linked to sin in his life. He knows this man as a unique individual, a one-of-a-kind image of God. And you, then you learn that Jesus helps those who cannot help themselves, including those who aren't even interested in helping themselves. He heals this man, why? Because the man needs it, not because the man deserves it. You discover that Jesus doesn't give people just one chance to see and understand him, but he gives multiple chances. He finds this man, verse 14, in the temple, and when he finds him there, he doesn't go to the other side of the temple and ignore him because the man was ungrateful and, and, and had no interest. Instead, Jesus talks to him. Jesus is so much better than what unbelief tells you to expect about God. You see how subtle unbelief is here, how it lies, how it doesn't tell you the truth about God, how it doesn't always come outright and just reject God, but that it replaces him with a substitute. And yet it's a substitute that's so ugly and so unlovable that nobody in their right mind would be interested in getting to know that kind of God. Here's one more. Here's grace. Here's, here's the glory of who God is. In the face of all of this unbelief, God shows up. Jesus shows up. Jesus inserted himself into a situation where bad theology was controlling people's physical lives, their spiritual lives, where their theology was keeping them from the real God. And what you learn in that moment is that God is not okay with that. That he's not just going to let that go. That he breaks into the world of unbelief to offer something so much better. And as soon as you see that, you start to realize, man, the, the, the counterfeit is exposed. You see God as he is, and, and you start to think, man, if this is who God is, not the one unbelief tried to sell me, I could like this God. I, I, I actually would like more of this God. I'd like this God to be involved in my own life. The antidote to unbelief is to see the real thing to see Jesus, to watch what he does, to see where he goes, to see that he cares about one unpleasant, unlovely individual, to watch Jesus go out of his way to touch this man's life, give the man reasons to, to trust Jesus. And you realize when you see that, man, maybe I could trust him to do that with me too. That's step one in dealing with unbelief. Let yourself see Jesus for who he is. Step two, listen to him. Listen to him call you to repent. Jesus finds this man in the temple, verse 14, and he says to him, see, you are well, which I am astounded by. There's no animosity here. There's no irritation. This man was ungrateful, uninterested in Jesus, and Jesus is not taking this bitterly. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, there are plenty of times in Scripture where it's clear that not all suffering is the result of sin. John will make that point in chapter 9 when Jesus heals a blind man. But apparently there are times when sin and suffering are linked. 
And Jesus discerns that this is one of those times, that this man's condition was related to something that he had done. And Jesus explicitly ties those two together and warns him that something worse is coming if he doesn't turn away from his sin. Now, what is that something worse? Jesus just sort of making some you know, threat to manipulate him? You know, no, he's not. Later in this chapter, Jesus is still talking to the Jewish leaders and he's talking about the next life. He talks about the judgment that will come. He says in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Dropping down to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's the something worse that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus has in mind here that there are times where we get a taste of that judgment now. That there are times when God lets you taste that coming judgment in some kind of present suffering. It's apparently what the man had experienced in that paralysis or weakness that he had. That there are times when that future judgment works its way back into our present and we get a taste of that something worse, that coming judgment. And Jesus warns this man. He says, turn your back on sin. Turn your back on unbelief. Turn your back on a life of rejecting God, on a life of relying on yourself, because if you don't, there's something worse coming. There's judgment coming. This man doesn't hear the warning. He rejects Jesus instead of rejecting unbelief. He walks away. You never hear of him again. Jewish leaders also reject Jesus. They're more active. They go on, verse 16, to persecute Jesus, verse 18, to seek to kill him. Don't let yourself be fooled here. Unbelief is not gentle. Regardless of how nice it looks on the outside, it wants nothing to do with God. It'll get a, away from him if it can. It'll get rid of him if it has to. But by doing that, it will damn you to an eternity apart from him an eternity of something worse, of something far worse than any suffering you've ever experienced on this earth. Unbelief is the biggest enemy that you will ever face in this life. Is there societal evil in the world? Of course there is. Are there spiritual forces of wickedness, forces that tempt you, that turbocharge the evil that you see in society all around you? Absolutely. Are those forms of evil the biggest danger that you and I will face not even close. The very worst thing that those external sources of evil can do is ruin your present happiness. They can take away everything that you love. They can make you absolutely miserable. They can make you feel like life is not worth living. They can do all of that, but they cannot ruin your soul. Unbelief, however, can. It can not only ruin your present moment, Unbelief can ruin your eternal happiness. The deepest, most dangerous problem confronting you as a member of, human of the human race is not from evil outside of you. It's not from everything that's going on all around you. It's from what comes within you. And unbelief will do its best to blind you to that reality, to keep you from seeing it. And that's why Jesus came and walked on this earth. It was to expose unbelief. 
It was to show you what he's really like so that you would reject unbelief, so that you would embrace him, so that you wouldn't face that something worse by yourself. Jesus came to face the coming judgment for you, to make a trade with you on the cross, a trade where he would take your judgment for your unbelief, your judgment for rejecting God, and he would give you his reward of a resurrected life for depending on God his entire life. A trade that you need because it's so tempting in this world to live as if evil is simply external. That it's something out there in the larger world, that it's not in here, in every human heart. It's so tempting to live as if you can overcome your temptations with a little more work and a little more effort. So tempting to live without calling your friends, your neighbors, to an awareness that their deepest problem is not all around them. It's within them. Jesus came because the logic of unbelief makes so much sense to you and so much sense to me that we could never be free of it on our own. And so Jesus came because he's not the God of the pool of Bethesda who will throw you back on your own resources. He's the son of the living God who came into this world to free you from unbelief. He'd have done that for that man. He'd have gone to the cross for him. He would have let himself be pinned to the cross, weak, just like that man, paralyzed, just like that man, unable to move, unable to help himself, just like that man was held captive in his body. He'd have done that for that man so that that man would enjoy forever a healed body, a healed, renewed, resurrected body because his spirit would have been resurrected. Jesus would have done that for the man. He will do that for you. Don't be indifferent to him. Don't walk away. Don't prefer your own way of giving yourself a better life. Let him heal you. Let him heal you inside. Let him tell you what to do to turn away from a life of sin. Let him face your judgment for you. Be killed for you so that you can share in his resurrection, so that you can have life for all eternity, life that starts now. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have entered into this world, that you have taken unbelief on at its root. Lord, that you identified the real issue in us and you came with a real solution. Lord, I pray that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you way more than we ever have, that we would want you and that we would sense your life inside of us. I pray, Lord, for those who are listening who don't know you. Lord, move in their hearts to desire you more. Lord, for those who do know you, move in our hearts so that we would desire you more. And I pray this in Jesus' name.